0: I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 15, Psalm 15. Without going into a lengthy review of where we have been in some of our recent studies in the Psalms, I'll just let you know that this 15 Psalm is the first of what I've called a cluster of Psalms. It begins at Psalm 15, it goes through to Psalm 24, and this particular cluster of psalms all seem in one way or another to address the question of the presence of the Lord. I mentioned a couple of the old songs from the 60s that filled my thoughts as I was preparing some sermons recently, and uh, Chuck reminded me at the door last week, I forgot blind faith, the presence of the Lord. Indeed. Well, these are, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. I realize that. We all have different tastes of music, we all have different eras in which we've listened to it, so to make allusions to music is sometimes pitifully weak in, 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 in the pulpit, but nonetheless, um, yeah, we find, we find a place in God's presence. The place of God's presence is what God himself has initiated would be a reality in the lives of all of his people. And this grouping of psalms, this cluster of psalms, all to one, one way or another celebrates that reality. Now, I mentioned last week, it's this particular opening psalm, Psalm 15 and its counterpart in Psalm 24, that both address the subject of how we approach the presence of God. God, approaching God's presence is an awesome thing coming before the presence of the living God is something that we shouldn't do lightly we shouldn't do with a sense of chumminess that we can come into God's presence easily without any thought of who in the world he is I remember a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones when I was a young Christian he preached at the Calvary Baptist Church in New York City and he was making reference to the Lord's Prayer and the doctors said that we have this freedom to come to the Lord boldly, to come before his presence and say, Our Father. But lest we think to crawl up on his knee and call him Daddy, he says, Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And only Dr. Lloyd-Jones could do this British accent, could put that message across with the power that he did. But that's the reality. We come before the presence of the king of the universe. We come before the presence of the God who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. How in the world can we come into his presence and have any sense of delight and joy and, and, and the sense of we're accepted in his presence? Remember the Israelites at Mount Sinai? When God spoke the words of the Ten Commandments from the mountain, and the people just said to Moses, oh, we had enough of this. Moses, you go up to the mountain, you get the word, you come back to us. We don't want to be in the presence of God. It's a fearsome thing. As Hebrews tells us, to fall into the hands of the living God. It's an, it's a, it's an awesome thing to contemplate standing in God's presence. And yet this is a psalm that tells us that that presence is something we should approach. And that we have a right to approach but with certain criteria, certain qualifications, certain prerequisites that are essential. And so I want to read the psalm, and then we'll look at it together. O Lord, or O Yahweh, the covenant name of God in that in, in there, who shall dwell, I'm sorry, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what's right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change, who does not put out his money of interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved." At first glance, this is a a very challenging psalm, a challenging psalm that impacts our worship and our life. In fact, it draws in closest proximity both worship and life. The language may seem very strange to most of us. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Strange questions for us. As our worship as the people of God under the new covenant have nothing to do with tents, has nothing to do with hills, but Israel's worship had everything to do with tents and hills. Israel's worship took place on a hill, the holy hill of Mount Zion, that location where David, once he had consolidated the kingdom in first Samuel I believe it is chapter 6 or second Samuel chapter 6 I imagine it is second Samuel chapter 6 he brought the ark of the covenant into and onto mount zion and he placed it in a tent that he had constructed for it whatever happened to the tent that was built in the wilderness we don't know but uh, apparently all that was left was the ark where God's presence was manifested as that was the footstool of the throne of his own presence in the Holy of Holies. And that went upon that mountain and God was worshipped there as a central place of Israel's worship from that time on. Mount Zion, that hill, became the place the people would come during their festivals, Passover, Feast of Booths, the Feast of Weeks they would come to worship God on Mount Zion. It was on that hill, of course, that Solomon, David's son, built a temple. The temple that existed for a number of years until the Babylonians destroyed it. And yet upon their return from captivity, it was rebuilt. This temple was rebuilt on that same site. And so Israel had a long history of worshiping God On a hill. But you see, from the time in which these Psalms were collected and put together into a book of 150 Psalms and used in the worship of God's people in the temple and in the synagogue after the time of captivity, there was no tent. No tent existed. There was a temple. There was Solomon's temple that existed prior to the Babylonian captivity. After the Babylonian captivity, there was a temple that was rebuilt in the days of Ezra. And so when the people of Israel met and they worshiped God and they sang his praises and they used these hymns, these songs in the worship of God, why were they talking about a tent? Why didn't they just say, Who shall sojourn in your temple? Well, the tent goes back to another era. The tent goes back to another time in Israel's history when God, having redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, brought the nation to another hill. Hills are in God's purpose many times, not just Mount Zion, but Mount Sinai. It was from Mount Sinai. Moses received instructions, not just the Ten Commandments, not just the law that governed Israel's life as a nation, but also on that mount God gave instruction to Moses about the building of a tent it's called the tabernacle a sanctuary it's first mentioned in Exodus 25 and verse 18 where God said to Moses let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst God gave the order to build a sanctuary God gave a pattern for the building of the sanctuary he said to Moses Make sure that you do it in accordance with the pattern given to you in the mount. God was the, the architect of the thing. Felt exactly how that tabernacle should be built. And then the people gave contributions out of their own free will, desiring to worship God. They gave of their gold. They gave. They, they spoiled the Egyptians of gold. But whatever they had, they gave willingly, freely, that this tabernacle would be built. And then God gave skilled workers amongst the Israelites Remember Basiel and uh, Oholiab, I think his name was. I might have gotten that name, those names wrong. But these were people that through the Spirit of God were given the wisdom and an enablement to build this tent and to build its furniture so that once this was constructed it became a place in which God Himself descended. The glory cloud that was upon Mount Sin- Sinai <coughs> Came upon this tent. And this tent was called in the language of his Exodus and also Numbers and of Leviticus. It was called two things. It was called the tent of his presence because God was present, God's glory cloud descended upon that tent. But it was also called the tent of meeting. That's where Israel could come and meet with their king, come and meet with their God in that tent and through that tent. And so it was a house of his presence, and there was a house of meeting. These are the major abiding realities concerning that tent. God dwelt in the midst of Israel's dwellings, Remember the the, the glory cloud would lift up off of the tabernacle and the people would then order themselves in a way that they would march through the wilderness. Differing tribes would follow in, in, in in a successive order and then God would lead them to the next stop. And then the tabernacle would be erected there and God's glory would come from the cloud of Uh, uh, um, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and then again dwell in their midst and all the tents of the Israelites surrounded the tent of God God was in their midst imagine that who's the most important people that lives in your neighborhood well Israel had God in their neighborhood God dwelt in their midst Now, it was succeeded by a temple, a permanent structure, in which God would no longer dwell in a tent. That was what David said. "I dwell in a house of cedar," he said in First Samuel chapter six. I'm sorry, First Samuel chapter seven. "I dwell in a house of cedar. God's dwelling in a tent. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And so I'm going to build a permanent structure of cedar for God's glory. But remember what God said when David first made a proposal of such a thing? Let's look at it. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has a bright idea. Let's do better for God. He'd been dwelling in this tent. Let's do better. Let's build him a house of cedar, such as I dwell in. Now Nathan had come to him in the first three verses, and At the end of the day, Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And then when he left, well, the Lord had a different message for Nathan to go back and tell David. That same night, we read in verse 4, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Thus says Yahweh, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Imagine building a house for God to dwell in. I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling." God says, I've not complained. (laughs) You know, one of the advantages of the tent is wherever the people went, God went. Wherever the people went in all of their movements in the wilderness, God was with them. When all the people went out to do their battles in the wars against the Canaanites, God went with them. God was with them. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I mean, God needs a house of cedar. We're talking about the living God. We're talking about a tent that symbolized the presence of God with his people. There was a special presence of God manifested with his people. That were Where the people were, God dwelt in their midst. A house where God, or a tent where God's worship took place. They met with God in that place. And now God's saying, in essence, I don't need a house. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. That's what Stephen tells us in the book of Acts. God doesn't need anything that he needs a house to live in. And yet it's in David's heart to do it. And God tells him, I'll go you one better, David. You want to build me a house? I'm going to make of you a house. Meaning that David from that point forward would have a dynasty. You know, we think of the house of Tudor or the house of Windsor, the house of the ruling kings. Well, David's house was the kingly house, the kingly a descent of David and his sons who ruled over the kingdom of Israel and over the kingdom of Judah and so God says I will make of you a house and then we look at the Davidic Covenant of an establishment of a kingdom of a throne forever of course that kingdom is fulfilled in Jesus the son of David the greater son of David but God doesn't need a temple God doesn't need a house God says, I dwelt in a tent, it was enough for me. It should be enough for you. You see, the important thing is not the size, it's not the shape, it's not the place. Though a central sanctuary was envisioned in the book of Deuteronomy, it was never designed to replace the symbolism of the tent. The symbolism of the tent was to be embodied by the temple. And it wasn't just, well, God's dwelling in Jerusalem all the way back over there. And so we come down from Dan or Naphtali or Asher or one of the other tribes, and we come to Jerusalem to meet with God. No, it's the reality God is in the midst of His people. Whoever they are, wherever they go, His presence is a reality. God does not dwell in isolation on a mountain to be visited by his people when they choose to come to seek him out, when they choose to come to worship him at the festivals. God is the God who approaches them. God is the God who comes into their midst. And it's the tent, the tabernacle that embodies that enduring notion of a relationship with God where God is present with His people in the midst of His people and His people draw near to Him and dwell with Him as He dwells with them. And so I think that's why the tent is referred to rather than the tabernacle or or, or, uh, rather rather than than the temple. It's going back to that ancient idea of a God who's near, a God who dwells in the midst of His people, wherever they are, wherever they go. But yet the point is still. How can you sojourn in God's tent, in God's presence? We're sinners. He's a holy God. Isaiah asked the question in Isaiah 33, how can you dwell with everlasting burnings? How are you going to approach a God who's a consuming fire? Well, you see, God himself is the one who provides the way. I think one of the problems when you read the psalm is you think to yourself, well, look at, at what telling me. It's telling me I have to be all this stuff here in order to dwell with God, in order to commune with God. That sure seems like some form of works righteousness that the Lord is speaking about. But I would simply say no. In the tent, in the tabernacle, God provided the way of acceptance. It was God who, along with the sanctuary, provided the priesthood and the priestly garments in the same passages. He's the God who commanded the offerings to be brought in the book of Leviticus to cleanse the people from their sins. He gave them the service of worship. He provides atonement, He provides reconciliation. He cleanses His people from their sins through the shedding of the blood of the animal offerings that the people brought. Of course, pointing to a greater offering that would be given of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins. And the point is that those who would dwell with the Lord, those who would have God to dwell in their midst, are a people who are redeemed, a people who are saved, a people who are cleansed, a people who are forgiven. But yet the reality of being cleansed, saved, forgiven, reconciled to God, does not rule out the importance, the central importance Of moral qualifications to approach a pure and a holy God. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? When you really think about it, is the question what are the moral qualifications? What are the moral prerequisites? To come and worship God. That's why I had all those passages read. That there are these moral qualifications. Jesus says when you come in with your offering into the temple and you realize you got some problem with a brother who has something against you, go get reconciled first. You got a brother that might be upset. What are you doing bringing your sacrifice until you get that thing straightened out with your brother? You have moral responsibilities to be reconciled to your fellow Israelite. And then bring your worship. Then bring your gift. James says, when you come to hear the Word of God, don't think in your mind, well, hey look, hey look, it's Sunday morning, it's 11 o'clock, preacher opened up the Bible, preacher starts to preach, it's automatic. Blessings coming my way. I'm in the right place at the right time, at the right hour, doing the right thing. It's automatic. James says it's not automatic. He says, before you do it, put away the filthiness and the naughty thoughts and the garbage that you brought into the worship. Confess it. Get right with God with respect to it. Do what you can to reconcile with others. At least determine in your heart you're going to before you come and expect to have any profit from God's word. Sin does not comport with worship. They don't mix. They don't mix. Those who dwell with the Lord and have the Lord dwell with them must be a morally, not compromised, but qualified people. Moral compromise will not do. There must be moral qualifications. But what does that mean exactly? I mean, okay, we need to be doing these things, but is that just a question of self-reformation? Is this a question of getting our lives squared away and straightened out by the stuff of our own doing? Well, I think these qualifications that are mentioned in Psalm 15, he who walks blamelessly, does what's right, speaks truth in his heart, doesn't slander with the tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, takes up a reproach, nor takes a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. He doesn't put out his money at interest, and doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. First of all, that's the most extensive statement found anywhere in Scripture in one of these psalms or one of these statements of how to approach God. I mean, you're really given all this detail. Eleven items are sent before us, set before us here, and notice how that differs from Psalm 24. Turn to Psalm 24, just nine or ten psalms later, and the same question is really, in its essence, is, is asked. Who shall? This is verse three of Psalm uh, Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? We're back to the hill. Who shall stand in His holy place? That could be tabernacle, it could be temple. It's God's holy place. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, doesn't lift up his soul to what's false, and doesn't swear deceitfully. That's four. That's four. Four items of concern in Psalm 24, 11 items of concern in Psalm 15. It's a much fuller statement. And why is that? Well, I think it's because God's, the, the psalmist is bringing us back into Israel's past, bringing us back to the reality of the tent. Of God's meeting with Israel. He's bringing us back to the qualifications of worship that are defined for us in Leviticus. You love that book, don't you? Every Christian loves to come to Leviticus in their reading of the Word of God. I know you don't. It's tough reading, but yet it's a very important book. In fact, it's the book that Jewish young people are taught before any other book of Scripture. They teach their young children, their young boys, the book of Leviticus. Rather strange procedure, I would think. But yet Leviticus is really important because it really addresses the question of how we approach God, of how God makes the way of approach for us through the sacrificial system, but also appends to the reality of approaching him the need for moral integrity. And we find it in chapter 19, what gets to be called the Holiness Code. And I want you to just look there just a moment and see how this holiness code is presented to us in chapter 19. This, I think as you read through Leviticus 19 you'll hear, the, you'll hear stuff that gets echoed in, in Psalm 15. This is I think really where the psalmist is getting much of his perspectives from. It's this very statement that's found in chapter 19. And look at what it says in chapter 19 of Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. We're familiar with those words that are quoted in the book of 1 Peter. But you see, it's a call to be like God. God himself is holy and you, his worshiper, are to be holy. Now we can never be like God in terms of the fullness of His moral perfections. We are sinners, but that's to be at least our ambition. It's what we strive towards. We strive towards likeness to the living God. But you know what folks? Whatever you worship, you become like. Whatever that is, you become like the things that you worship. I'm giving you the example of James Dean the guy I met up in Newport's when I taught a Bible study up there, and a the young man sitting right across me with the leather jacket, with the boots, with the slick back hair. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, you must like James Dean. Well, most of you don't even know who James Dean was. America's losing a memory of him, but he was a, a star in the movies back in the 1950s, and he had his own style, which young people who viewed movie stars as their idols... They worshipped those idols. They were dressed like their movie stars. All well, the women back in the day that wore the Farrah Fawcett hairstyle or wore the Cher hairstyle—it was because they had these idols that they looked to and worshipped. The point is what you worship, what you invest your time in, your interest in, your love towards—you come become like that thing. And God says, I am to be the object of your worship. And as I am holy, you are to be holy. Every one of you shall revere his father and mother, keep my Sabbaths. You to do my will, you to obey my commandments. And at the end of most every one of these statements in Leviticus 19, we have an expression such as, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God and of course I am is how God revealed himself to Moses He's the I am he is who he is and we are to seek to be as he is we're to seek likeness to the God of heaven and earth I am the Lord your God I am the Lord your God and then there's calls in this section to fear him you shall fear the Lord your God that's the reason you're not to put a stumbling block before the blind or to curse the, de- curse the deaf even though they won't see who did it, and they won't hear what was said. Yet God sees, and God knows, and God takes account, and you're to live before God. These are the motivating factors that govern the lives of God's people. We live in God's presence. We fear His name. We delight to do His will. We want to please Him. We want to spend time with Him. We want to see His beauty. Psalm 27 says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I also seek that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. The reality is we are image-bearing creatures. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And we tend to, we tend to emulate. We tend to do what it is of uh, the things we spend time with. The, I was playing around with, uh, with, uh, with Stanley. And you know, you go up to Stanley, you make goofy faces, and what does he do? He makes goofy faces back. That's because his babies are imitative creatures. They learn from what they see, and they replicate what they see. Israel was to see God in their midst. How God related to them, how God treated them, how God showed His love to them, how God showed His faithfulness to them. And they were to say, well, how God relates to us, that's how we are to live, and that's how we are to relate to other people. And I think that's really what you have in Psalm 15, is you have this question of how shall we approach His presence? The God who dwells in the tent the place of meeting, the place where His presence is found. is the person who seeks to be like the God we seek to approach. He is blameless and always does what is right. He is one who speaks truth and never leads us astray. And so those first four things, three things, that speak of God's general character, you can't find blame in God. Who's going to say, God, you've done something wrong? He does all things well. There's a sense in which we are to replicate that aspect of God's being by not living with marked areas where someone can accuse us of criminality. You who worship God, you can't come from shoplifting, from stores, or violating people's rights or breaking laws and engaging in criminal conduct and thinking you can plop yourself down into the midst of God's people and expect that God's going to delight in your coming to worship Him. And you know, you have all kinds of people that have that notion. They can sin as all they want and live as they please during the week and go to church on Sunday and praise Jesus. I tell you, the hypocrisy just simply doesn't work. Because of who we approach. We approach God in Christ, the one who lives lived before us blamelessly in a sinless life upon the earth, who did all things well, always did what was right, the one who spoke truth. We we are called to be like Him, to be transformed to His image. And so it's the question of how we see God. Positively, blameless, right, truthful, negatively. is God going around slandering people? Is he going to, in the day of judgment, tell tales about people that are false? And say, I'm going to judge you because of a bunch of lies I've come up with. I've heard a bunch of rumors about you. And I'm going to make it known before... God's not a slanderer. God speaks truth. And all these matters here have to do with the way God relates to our fellow believer, or our fellow Israelites in the Jewish context, in the Old Testament context. God doesn't go about slandering. That's man's work. People go around telling tales. People going around with all manner of false rumors that they speak. Not God. God does no evil to the neighbor. God's not in the business of hurting your neighbor. Why you? See see the point? It's how God himself deals with his people is the measure of how we are to deal with others. God doesn't go around slandering. God doesn't go around doing evil. God doesn't take up a reproach against a friend. Why you? Why you? Why going around telling about All the ways you think this person or that person is a transgressor and why people should think ill of them and think well of you. That's man's work, not God's. So positively, look how God acts. Blameless, right, truthful, negatively. What he never does, never slanders, never does evil, never takes up a reproach against an Israelite. You thought I was going to preach on every one of these with some exhaustiveness. I'm not. I'm not. Can't do that. Can't do that. We have six, in, 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 six in, the, in the books, right? We've already done six. And seven and eight, that has to do with how God distinguishes the vile and the worthy. God is the one who distinguishes evildoers and righteous people. In his eyes, a vile person is despised. He honors those who fear him. And so should we. God's evaluation, God's assessment of people should reflect the way we assess people. We don't assess them by how much money they have. We don't assess them on how beautiful they look. We don't assess them with how athletic they are. We don't have the evaluations that the world has on people. Our evaluation is a question of acceptability with God. Are you vile or do you honor Him? Are you a rebel or are you a, a worshiper? Do you seek Him or do you degrade Him in your words and actions and deeds? We have God's assessment upon the way we value people and understand people and make proper distinguishing distinguishments among people we discern rightly by God's standard and not the standard of men God despises the vile he honors the pious and so should we that doesn't mean we don't try to see that the vile person becomes a worthy person that a vile person becomes a believing person. No, but just we recognize vileness for what it is. That's wicked. That's wrong. That's not acceptable. That's something not something we follow. We put it in the right categories. The categories that God Himself has set forth to us by his own way of dealings of dealing with others. And then there's a final thing. He does not abuse his power and authority in Israel. these matters of financial dealings that are spoken of. Someone who makes a covenant, enters into an agreement, gives an oath, and because he has the power to do it, he says, hey, that's not in my interest any longer. Market forces have changed. Things have changed. It's really in my interest not to keep my commitment. And so I'm going to break my vow Violate my oath because it benefits me. Does God do that? Does God break vows and commitments and oaths and promises because, well, he'll gain some advantage by doing it? No. God keeps his words and so should we. Think of how God's blessed us with money. Monetary gain. Ah, wonderful. Wonderful. I got a little source of resource, a little resource now to go make money, go have a little business online and see how I can make out. Put out my money and charge usurious interest. I can do it. I got the power. I got the ability to do it. And God's saying, as He says often in chapter 19 of Leviticus, when you give something to someone who's poor, don't expect anything in return. Don't expect payback. Don't expect to to do anything other than show mercy, as God has shown mercy to you. God's gifts are free. and We should be those who give out of no regard for return. We want to bless. We want to encourage. We want to help. We want to feed the poor. We want to feed the hungry. We want to clothe the naked. We want to give to those who are thirsty and needy. Without any thought of what... Return will there will be, other than the return of his reward, that he's pleased with that kind of service we render to him. And then how about the judge who says, "Hey, look, I'm in this position of power now. I have influence. I have authority. Perfect time to line my own pockets, take a bribe, and I'll rule in favor of those that have paid me." and Declare the innocent to be guilty. No. God does not take a sliding scale in judgment. He judges in accordance with righteousness. He judges in accordance with truth. He judges in accordance with what is reality. And so must every judge in Israel. So much must we do in all of our relations with other people. Money is not a reason to miscarry justice. And so it's God's ways It's God's behavior, we might say. It's the way God conducts Himself in the midst of His people that is the measure that determines how we respond to Him. We say, Lord, I want to be as You are. I want to live as You live. I want to relate to others as You relate to others. I want to be conformed to Your image. Would you have fellowship with God? Would you approach Him acceptably? The call of Scripture is revere Him, fear Him, and replicate Him. Do as He does. What God does, you do. Fear Him and follow Him. If you would be intimate with Him, imitate Him. Would you be intimate with Him? Imitate Him. Fear Him, follow Him, revere Him, and replicate Him his ways. Well, we've looked at the great question. I didn't, anyone told you I was doing this, but I did. They didn't announce it. I'll tell you now. We have a great question. Who shall approach the tent? Who shall come to his holy hill? And the great answer. Eleven points of answer that says those who seek to be like God. Those who seek to follow his ways. Those who seek to be holy as he is Holy. That's what counts in worship. That's what counts in our approach to God, that we be like and strive to be like and desire to be like and long to be like and be unhappy and dissatisfied until the day when we are fully like Him, which won't be till glory comes. But then we will be like Him as we see Him as He is. But that's the goal, folks. Conformity to Christ's image. And then we have a great promise is that wonderful? We have a great question and a great answer that's followed by a great promise. As we delight in God's promises, what does God promise those who approach Him in this way? Well, the rendering of the ESV is that he who does these things shall not be moved. The word in the Hebrew that's used for be moved is that person will never totter, never shake, never slip, never be overthrown. It's the picture of security Stability and strength to stand. Strength to stand. In the face of all the changes of life, in the face of all the troubles of life, in the face of all the difficulties that come our way, God's people have a security that's unwavering, that's unchanging. There's nothing that can ever take it from us. We have a security in God's will and plan and purpose and love that nothing could ever separate us from. Nothing could ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can then stand firm, secure, and be faithful, whatever might come. See, the problem isn't so much we're not strong enough. The problem is we're not holy enough. The problem is we're not communing with God enough. The problem is we're not looking to the Lord sufficiently in faith and in faithfulness. That's why we falter. That's why we stumble. That's why we fall. When God is the object and focus of our worship and service and love and commitment, it's amazing how strong you get. (laughs) It's amazing how uncompromising you become. It's amazing how you even look a teenager in the eye and say, nope, nope, sorry. No persuasion of that sort is going to do you any good. I'm fully persuaded in what I believe to be the will of God. That's how strong you'll be. You can look your teenager in the eye and say, You're not gonna move me. All the tears and all the crying and all not not working, not working with me. I know who I've believed, I'm persuaded he's able to give me the grace to endure, even a teenager, in all of the pressure that they place upon me, or the co-worker in all the play- pressure that's placed on you, or the boss who's looking to get you to do the things you know are unconscionable and wrong, you will not be moved. Not only, that's the negative part, you won't be moved, but you know what you will be? You'll be a blessing. You'll be useful. You'll be serviceable to God's kingdom. You'll be serviceable to other people. You'll be a blessing to your family. You'll be a blessing to your community. You'll be a blessing to the assembly of believers. Such people are steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that their labors are not in vain in Him. And in case you haven't gotten it up to this point, this is just not Old Testament, this is New Testament as well. In Christ we have a tent. John tells us, the word became flesh and tempted among us. Pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. God's presence that was in the tabernacle in the wilderness was in Jesus fully, completely. In him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The incarnate Son of God is the presence of God with man- Mankind. Jesus says, destroy this temple. Hey, Babylonians destroyed the temple of Solomon. Romans destroyed the temple of Herod. Jesus says, destroy this temple. You know what? I'll raise it up in three days. Indestructible. Indestructible temple. An indestructible presence of God with men, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in their midst. A God who is present with us always, even to the end of the age. A temple that can't be destroyed. A temple that's a tabernacle moving with us. Wherever we are, wherever we go, God's presence is with us. That's the great question of who will Sojourn in the house of God under the new covenant with Jesus. It's those who are the recipients of the grace of Christ who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's the way of pardon, He's the way. Of peace, but he's also the way of power. He's the way to holiness. He's the way to live a life that's fully conformable to Him. In Him we have the way to God. We have the answer to the great question of who's worthy to dwell with God. It's those who trust in Christ. But it's also in Him we have the great promise of stability. We have the great promise of security the great promise of strength. And so, though on one hand, this is a psalm that at the outset seems challenging and difficult on many levels, yet the reality is, it does point us to an unchanging God whose standards and concerns with his people and his worshipers has always been the same. That we be a people who love him and seek him and desire him and see in him the one whom we want to image. We want to be like the God of heaven and earth. As much as it's possible for a sinner to be holy in this world, we want to be that holy person. I know we fall. I know we slip. I know the story of our lives is never what we would have, would have, we would have written. But it is wonderful to know that there's constant forgiveness with him, that he may be feared. Constant ability to pick ourselves up off of the ground with all of our failures and all of the ways we've messed things up and find we have a God who delights in our approach. He says, yes. My presence will never leave you. My presence will never forsake you. And we can return to him and find in him the fullness of his grace and blessing. May God be pleased to encourage our hearts. May God be pleased to help us to be a people who are not open to moral compromise, but we're concerned with moral integrity. To honor and bless and praise and serve this God, whom we approach and seek through Christ our Lord, let's pray together. Father, we're thankful we can be in this very vital psalm, this important psalm, placed in the portion of the psalms in which this whole matter of how we approach Your presence comes before us in some fullness of instruction. And we're thankful that You tell us it's not a matter of what what we can ever do in, in, in ourselves. It's how we respond to what you've done. And it's how, in response to what you've done, we, we come to show love to you, and a commitment to you, and faith in you, and desire for you. And we're thankful that that presence is always open to your worshipers, that through Christ we can come that there is that fountain laid open for sin and uncleanness, that Christ has borne away our sins and purged us of all of our transgressions, but he's also worked in us newness of life. He's also worked in us holiness of des- holy desires and a desire to seek you in ways that, is, that are transformative. We pray that by your Spirit we would be evermore from one degree of glory to another, like the image of the one we behold by faith, in the gospel. So hear our prayers, bless your people, strengthen us in your grace, and receive our praise and thanksgiving as we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen.